0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulest Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soulishchurch.com. The prophet Zechariah. How many of you have done an in depth Bible study on the book of Zechariah before? One of us. Awesome. Perfect. So, Um, In fact, if you would ask me that about most of these minor prophets uh, before this whole series, I I wouldn't be able to raise my hands. I've kind of skimmed through the minor prophets, um, but as we've kind of been mining through them, uh, it's been really awesome to to just discover how rich uh, these books are. There's just so much incredible content in them. They have some similarities, but each week we want to make sure we step back And uh, before we get into the application that this book is going to give us, it does give us application, we want to make sure we have a good foundational understanding of what's going on. What is Zechariah? We want to be able to just kind of do the Cliff Notes uh, version almost. Uh, And we do that with what we're calling our prophet profile. So here is just a snapshot of what the book of Zechariah has going on with it, all right? First, you have the title of the book named after its prophet, Zechariah. His name uh, means the Lord remembers. That's just good news. I don't know for you, but I know for me, I can forget a lot. And so it's always good to know that God remembers when I'm so prone to forget. That's what his name means. Cool name. Uh, What's really important to know just off the bat here about Zechariah is that his territory and his time frame in regards to his ministry uh, is shared alongside the prophet Haggai. You guys remember him? So just last week, we looked at Haggai, which is the ninth minor prophet, or 10th rather, the 10th minor prophet. And Haggai we saw as a prophet that God used to stir the spiritually inactive people of God back into service. Uh, Let let me give us a little bit more context to know what's going on here. Uh, The date there is 520 BC. And in Israel's history... Uh, this is a moment in, 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 in time when Israel has begun to return back to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. Now, you're wondering, like, when did that happen, right? Because haven't we been studying about the fact that that's going to happen? Uh, Yeah, actually, the the first nine minor prophets are all predicting that judgment day coming for Israel. The time when God would raise up the army of Babylon to be an instrument in his hand to execute his judgment on his people for their idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. And that's what most of the prophets were pointing to, all nine of them, uh, in the beginning there. And then you have it happen, if you read the book of Daniel, you see the narrative under King Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. You see the nation of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, led captive and uh, led away as exiles. For 70 years, Israel, their exiles in Babylon, and all that they know of, in regards to home, has just been destroyed. So the, the, the walls are broken down. You read about that in the book of Nehemiah. The homes, everything is just reduced to an ash heap, just a, a pile of rubble, including the temple. The temple was ransacked. All the, golds, all, all, all the gold and silver, everything in there has been taken by the enemy. Now, uh, God, in a in addition to promising that there would be judgment, God also promised that a day of mercy would come. So though they're going to be exiled, after 70 years, God promised this through the prophet Jeremiah before it happened. After 70 years, God would begin to bring them back home. This is the, the, the story of history, the story of God and humanity. God pursues relationship with man, pursues covenant with man. Our tendency is to be unfaithful in that covenant relationship. But the good news that holds it all together is that God still pursues us. God still loves us. God still pursues relationship with us. And we see that with Israel. So 70 years go by, and it's really cool how God begins the return process. He stirs the heart of the then uh, uh, pagan king of Persia, King Cyrus. God stirs the heart of a pagan king to send the Jews back to their nation to begin reconstructing the broken down temple. That's how it all begins. God stirs his heart. It's amazing. God can do whatever he wants through whoever he wants, right? He's like, I think I'll do it through that evil, wicked guy, okay? And so what you have is the first return back to Judah, to Jerusalem. You have 50,000 Jews who begin to migrate back, the first Zionist movement, back to Israel. And you have under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who's the governor of the area, And Joshua, the high priest, you have this reconstruction project happening. Uh, You can hear a lot more detail about this in last week's message. It's on our website and our podcast. Uh, Basically, the big uh, heartbeat behind this point was just the fact that God has a priority of reconstruction in all of our lives, just as he does in Israel. The first order of business was to restore relationship with God, to restore proper worship. The first thing God wanted them to do when they went back to to Jerusalem wasn't to get their houses all fixed up and, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, that thing. It wasn't to to just get right to building the wall and have a fortress and security. The first order of business was to have worship to God restored. And it's true for all of our lives. That, that must also be the center point of, of our lives' own uh, priorities. Uh, and so you see that happen. Now, two years into the building project, two years into the building project, the foundation's laid. You're starting to see Israel kind of come back to life again. Uh, the rubble has been, you know, the debris, that's like the hardest part of any repair. If you've ever done demo in your house. It's like, oh, I just got to fix a few things here. It's like, no, you need nine years just to get rid of the mess, okay? And so that was a big part of it. They got rid of all the rubble, and they started to lay the foundation and build the altar. And then, as is commonly the case, opposition comes. Opposition to the work of God. You have the enemies of Israel that use physical force and political manipulation to stop Israel in their tracks and prevent them, prohibit them from building any further, Now, what happens is 14 years goes by, 14 years of inactivity. God's brought Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They face some opposition, and just at the slightest bit of opposition, they have now coasted into this sort of passive, spiritually inactive lifestyle. So last week, we looked at how God raised up a prophet named Haggai. God sent this prophet to the nation to basically say, "Hey guys, um, how are your homes looking?" That's what he says, and they're like, Haggai, thanks for asking. I was going to invite you over. Uh, it's looking great. It's looking great. Okay, we've got it all decked out. We've got the quartz. All right, we got the farmhouse sink. We got it all going. Haggai. you should come see it. And that's what's going on. Uh, the people have been for 15 years attending to their own personal priorities." And Haggai essentially says, well, I mean, that's nice and all, but have you seen the temple? Remember the purpose of God? Like you're so busy doing your own thing for your own purpose, for your own mission. What about the things of God? Haggai says, is it time for you to live in your, live in your nice paneled houses while the temple of God lies in ruins? And so God uses the prophet Haggai to stir the people up back into action to rebuild the temple again, to take up the shovel again, to get back to work. And we talked last week a little bit about how in our lives we can also be spiritually inactive. You know, maybe there's a project, a kingdom project God's given you and you've kind of been more focused on your own life and your own things rather than living for eternity, rather than living for um, the purpose God's given you. And so there's a, there's a great point in that. But what's really interesting, Zechariah, is that in the book of Ezra, Haggai isn't the only prophet that God uses for the nation. There is, alongside Haggai, there is another prophet. Uh, Tradition holds that he's a younger prophet. Haggai was a little bit older in age. Uh, Some people think that he was even uh, possibly born in Judah and exiled with Israel. So all 70 years. So he's seen the original temple. That's Haggai, the prophet God uses to stir the people up to get back to work. But Ezra tells us that Zechariah was with him. Okay, so this is the important context to know who Zechariah is and where he falls in the story of history. Ezra 5.1 says that the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of I do. Does anybody know who he is? I do. Joke. All right. Prophet Sorry. All right. Prophets. Look, these prophets, it says they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. I love this this tag team prophet duo. Uh, These guys are just wielding and dealing the word of God in Israel. And it's so effective that Ezra told us this. We looked at this last week. That Zerubbabel, the son son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, rose up. And they began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So so this is um, who Zechariah is. He's a counterpart, a contemporary of Haggai, a younger uh, prophet. His ministry starts a couple months later. It's likely that... Man, I feel like part of the way that God called me into ministry was like I experienced ministry, and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to, I want to bless people as as God has blessed me. I want to serve the Lord as that person serving the Lord. And, and that's probably what happened. Uh, Zechariah heard uh, Haggai's sermon, and he was like, I want to preach sermons too. That's kind of what happened. So he gets compelled into the ministry alongside Haggai. But this is what's unique about Zechariah in this book we have open before us. What's unique about the ministry of Zechariah in these 14 chapters before us is that where Haggai spoke more generally to the people of Israel, Zechariah speaks to its leaders. Zechariah speaks specifically to the leaders of that temple reconstruction project. Those are the individuals that are in the crosshairs of his ministry. Haggai speaking to the people and Zechariah you'll see all throughout this book it's 14 chapters long and let me just say this is not one of those books that you just kind of go I just feel like reading through this and just seeing what God speaks to me today through Zechariah you know without any like background there'll be one of those where you're like what is this book like what is go-? it's it's one of those where Zechariah has these eight visions at what point at one point there's a woman in a basket being transported Across uh, the world, led by these like creature angels, you're just like cool. That's awesome. Now you're like I want to read that, but but there's a lot going on in it. Is what I'm saying. In fact, when you even get to the end, you have this focus on the day of the Lord. You, so so Zechariah is like classic prophet speaking truth uh, that might be hard to hear, but. People need to hear. But by and large, like if we were to just summarize the general task of Zechariah's ministry. Like back then, if Zechariah was going to be known for one thing, it would be this is a guy that God used to encourage the leaders of Israel. This is the guy that God gave a specific ministry to not just generally the people of Israel, but to speak courage and boldness and passion into the leaders, the leadership of Israel, And this is what brings us to what we call each week the major message. What is the major message then? With that context, what is the major message of application that the book of Zechariah has for a couple 21st century Boca Ratonian, South Floridian American Christians? What's the application? Here's the major message of Zechariah. The major message of Zechariah is this sentence. The dependent nature of God's effective leaders, the dependent nature of God's effective leaders. You see, all of us who are called to lead, we'll get into that point in a second, but but we all want to be effective. We we all want to lead in such a way that it works, it matters. Our kids come to know the Lord and walk with him. Uh, our church actually follows the Lord. Our friends and coworker, they, they, they follow my example. We all have this desire not just to, to just kind of go about our leadership responsibilities generally, but to be effective. Uh, and that's what Zechariah's vision was for the leaders of Israel. He, he wanted them to help them, to encourage them to become even more effective leaders. But what Zachariah teaches us and what we see in this book is that effectiveness in leadership for the Lord is directly connected to dependence on God. Effectiveness in leadership, wherever God has called you to lead, is directly connected to your own dependence on God, specifically for what you need to lead well. Dependence on God. Here's the big idea. The idea is that there are, in leadership... In leading people, there are certain things that effective leaders desperately need. Like without these things, you're not going to lead well. But we do not possess those things in and of ourselves. They're things that we must come to God and receive from God in his grace. And that's how Zechariah kind of comes alongside and ministers to these leaders. He he comes alongside to help almost like equip them, give them the equipment that they need to lead well and effectively. Now, here's the problem with leadership. Just one, right? You know. Um, One of the main problems with leadership is the complex concepts, background experiences, and varied definitions that we all carry with us when we hear that word. So so even right now, when you hear the word leader, who comes to mind? What comes to mind? Here's a better question. Do you come to mind? A leader. Now, I want to clear a few things up here when we're talking about this, because I think one of the best ways to understand each of our calling in the body of Christ to lead wherever God has called us to lead. Uh, I think there are two dangers we've got to understand that we uh, may fall into in our understanding of leadership. I feel like today in the church there's there's one extreme uh, of understanding of leadership that can really mess a lot of us up that I'll call over-equalizing leadership. That's the first thing we tend to do with leadership. It's a big mistake, and it's not biblical. We do this thing called over-equalizing leadership. To over-equalize uh, calling to leadership, um, is to wrongly assume that every single person is called to lead the exact same way. Everyone's called to lead the exact same way. And the problem with that is just Scripture. Scripture gives, first and foremost, certain giftings in the body. Okay, Uh, Specifically, Romans 12 tells us that leadership is one of them. Uh, some people in this room, the reason why maybe you're not inclined to, like, be at the front, like, you're, you're, you're the one that, like, would rather navigate and, t- and, like, kind of, like, watch in the car. And you're not the one that's, like, I want to be behind the wheel. Like, some of you guys are, like, put me behind the wheel. I need to drive. I'm in control. I'm taking us where we need to go. Some of you guys are, like, no, I'm navigating. I'm just behind the scenes telling you what you're doing wrong, okay? That's my spiritual gift. Others of you are, like, I'm sitting in the back. I'm going to pray and intercede for this ride you know like you could just you could just go through all the different spiritual gifts and just in a road trip you, you'll find out who has what spiritual gifts right I want to drive okay now Romans 12 says that some are called in that unique way to drive. some have that leadership, you could say personality. not, not everyone's equally created to lead in the same way is what that means in addition to that, not everyone's called to lead in the same way. In, in the church, there's there's some people, not all people. Ephesians four says that God gave some to be pastors, some to be teachers. There's 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 some people that are called to lead in a primary way, but not all. Okay, and and we see this in a lot of different spheres. Uh, and this it's important to, to point this out that whenever we see that calling, it's never a matter of superiority or or inferiority. I think that's kind of the wrong idea we take with it. It's like the reason why we want everything. Everybody to have to lead in the exact same way is because we're struggling for identity and we're like, oh, I want what they have so I can feel better. That can kind of be the problem. But uh, it's never a matter of inferiority or superiority. It's a matter of just simply responsibility. It's a matter of accountability. Um, so, so God calls certain people to lead in certain specific kinds of way, whether it's in the church or even in the home. God has put uh, headship over the home in, in, in the man, in male leadership, in male headship. That's, that doesn't mean that the man gets to do whatever the heck he wants. No, that means the man is going to be accountable to God. Ephesians 5 says that one day the husband, he's going to present his wife to the Lord. Say, so, okay, here's the wife you gave me. I'm going to present her to you like, like the church, like you'll present the church. I'm going to present my wife to you and uh, in a sense of accountability for what I did in loving her and stewarding her. So I just want you to understand that concept, okay? That's the first big mistake, is when we over-equalize leadership. Uh, not everyone is called to lead in the same kind of way. And you've, you've seen the problem with this, right? Even on the playground growing up, right? You ever heard the expression, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, right? Like, there is only one steering wheel. In fact, if you have multiple hands on the steering wheel, you're going to crash, Okay? So, it's like that, that's just how it works. Not everyone's called to be the leader of the organization. So, th- this is just, just simply uh, um, an understanding of, of leadership in that way. Now, the other extreme is for those of you who are like, yeah, amen. Yeah, that's right. I'm not, that's not me. I'm the backseat guy, backseat driver, right? I, I, I drive backseat, right? Like, I, I like to lead, but in my own way, on my own time. Or maybe you go, I don't like to lead at all. I, you know what? God has gifted me with the ability to follow. I'm a follower. I'm just, is that a spiritual gift, a spiritual follower? I mean, kind of, you know? All right? But, but this is the other extreme, which is what we'll call underpersonalizing. One, one, one danger in leadership is we overequalize and we just assume that everybody's called to lead in the same exact way. The other extreme is we underpersonalize our own responsibility. And we say, well, you know, because I don't have this kind of personality and because I don't have that position, I am not called to lead. And that is not true. In fact, you you get the exact opposite when you see Jesus, after leading his disciples to follow him, turning to them, and with no respect to what their different roles would be in the church, with no respect to their different uh, giftings and leadership personalities, it's Matthew 28. It says, Jesus came to his disciples and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. There's some action there. uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't just speak this to Peter. He speaks it to all of them. This is called the Great Commission. It's the mission of a Christian, to be a leader, to to, to lead people. And uh, as I'm even using that word, probably should have started with this, but let's Throw up a definition, okay? When I use the term leadership, when we see Zacharias speaking to leadership in this book, when we see Jesus commissioning his followers to be leaders, to follow him, is also to lead others to follow him. Uh, Here's what I mean. Definition of leadership. Let's help us out a little bit. Uh, Leadership can be understood as the skillful ability to effectively influence others towards a targeted goal or desired destination just simply it's this skillful ability to effectively influence others towards a targeted goal or desired destination Um, sometimes that comes with a gift and sometimes god uses that person with the gift to spur everybody else on into their own calling but just because you don't have the gift like in romans 12 there's some other gifts like service imagine that right you're like well i'm not going to serve why? It's just not my gift. I have the leadership gift. Yeah, you got the service gift. Praise the Lord. Good for you. It's a good gift. Okay, I don't have that one. <laughs> All right. You can serve me as I lead you. You know, it's like, that's not right, okay? So, so like that's wrong thinking. Just because you don't have the service gift doesn't mean you're not called to serve. Just because you don't have the leadership gift, same idea, doesn't mean that you're not called to grow in the skillful ability. to to effectively influence others towards a targeted goal or desired destination. And ultimately, as Christians, can I remind us that we are all called by Jesus himself, a mandate that he has put on your and my life to effectively influence others to know him, to effectively influence others toward the targeted goal of trusting in Jesus. We've all been commissioned to that. Uh, I think some of the the weakness throughout the the decade that we can see in the decline in church attendance and and just overall sort of the um, the exodus that's happening with young people in the church is we've relegated the leadership to just one person we've assumed that if you're going to get saved you got to come to my church service and hear the pastor he's the pastor he's the sent one he's the leader it's like no it's called the priesthood of all believers right sent to lead sent to influence so as as we're kind of thinking about these concepts as we're thinking about I feel like this is important groundwork as a lot of us we have our own misconceptions about leadership I want you to ask this question understanding that to follow Jesus is to be called to lead the question to ask yourself today is where has God called you then to lead and who has God called you to influence just make this personal for a second we don't, we don't want to over-equalize, but we also don't want to under-personalize. Where has God called you to lead? What sphere has God placed you in? All right? And, and this, by the way, this isn't like some big exercise where you need like a vision from heaven to get a It's like, where are you is the question, right? When Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world, the, the literal tense of that word go is as you're going, wherever you're going, as you are where God has you, influence. As you are where God's placed you, lead. Is it in your home? Is it in your workplace? Is it in your school? Is it in your community? Where has God called you to lead? And maybe for some of you, he's really entrusted you with more than just a calling. He's given you the the, the gifting. He's wired you for it. And he's even given you a platform. Now, that's huge, man, to take full advantage of that. But, but what I want to remind you about is that if you're a Christian, right now you're like, man, I, I am a Christian. I get it, but I'm, I, I, where can I lead? I don't have a platform, you know. I could start, you know, like work as hard as I can to grow my Instagram following and maybe use that to be isn't that an influencer. That's what I need to be, right, uh, an influence in that. But, but no, listen, here's what Jesus says. You have a platform. Your platform is called belonging to God. That's your platform that we're called to lead from. Now, so who is that? Who has God placed in your life? Um, I, I imagine that Zachariah, speaking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two leaders that he specifically speaks to, I imagine that those two guys were overwhelmed. Leadership is overwhelming for a reason. We'll talk about that. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the leadership task God has given you? Overwhelmed by maybe the impossibility of taking whoever God's entrusted to you where you need to go. It can be. Imagine being Zerubbabel. First of all, having that name, that's tough. But imagine being Zerubbabel and Joshua, and you are the ones upon whom the responsibility has come to rebuild the temple of God's worship. This isn't some like simple GC project, you know what I mean? This isn't like just a little. We're talking about the pressure of how the people are going to compare it to what it used to be. That was a big pressure in leadership. We're talking about the weight of God's presence, which like in the past, like that sometimes has showed up and killed people. It's like life or death. This is scary. This is overwhelming. And it's supposed to be. Listen, if leadership wasn't overwhelming, we would depend on ourselves, wouldn't we? If leadership didn't drive us uh, to a point of desperation, we wouldn't have to fall on our knees and call out to God for the help that He alone gives us. And that's almost what Zechariah shows us. Zachariah shows us again, whatever our leadership callings are, wherever God has called us, there is this almost like programmed in Uh, dependency that we all have that that should lead us to cry out to God for the things that we need, and that's what Zechariah goes over. Again, when you study this book, 14 chapters long, but you have a couple of these key things that Zechariah is going to remind God's people of, of what they need, what they need to come to God to effectively lead. Again, that major message, the dependent nature of God's effective leader, saying, God, I see that you've called me. I'm overwhelmed." by the task that you've put before me. It's impossible with man. And, and I know, therefore, that then to be effective in this, I've got to depend on you for some things I don't have in and of myself. Um, I could spend the rest of the sermon just and call it the church planning chronicles by Andrew, okay? Like, this is exactly my experience. This has been my experience from the very beginning. Like, you know, the classic, like, You know the saying, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called? I'm like, I'm the one that's like clinging to that. Like, I hope that's true, you know? Okay? Even though everyone else seems a lot more equipped, you know? Like, I remember like being 20 years old. Like, hey, we want to bring in, you're going to be a youth pastor. I'm like, I'm pretty much in the youth ministry still. But, you know, also I probably like wouldn't have hired me. But anyway, like, and I remember conversations with like, you know, like, God's like, you're going to be a 21-year-old young youth pastor. I remember going, that's gonna be tough like for everyone involved and, and but there was no denying like this is what god called me to do and so man when, when i and i'd come face to face with whether it was parents like hey what like what sort of qualification like you're gonna be my son's youth pastor he looks older than you like you don't even have a beard you know like he does you know it's like and man like listen that's the best place to be did you know that we're just like i'm just doing what god's called me to do and it's great because now i'm set up to trust in him now I'm set up not to have self-confidence cuz like isn't that the worst? There's nothing worse than a leader all wrapped up in himself. Okay. What's the saying? A man all wrapped up in himself makes a small package. You know what I'm saying? Same with same with leadership. Same with someone who thinks they have what it takes. They don't need people, they don't need God. And God doesn't want us. That's not going to be effective, especially for this next generation. We got to be those that are depending on a little bit more than our own intelligence our own backgrounds, our own experiences. I'm not saying become a youth pastor at 21 without some formal training. Do that, okay? All right? But you get the task. You get the idea. Uh, Zachariah leads us to ask us this important question. Write this next question down. As you think about your own life, what do you need to lead effectively? Who or where has God called you to lead? And what do you actually need to do it well? And by need, I mean, what do you need from God? What do you need to depend on God for? Can I give you a couple suggestions? Zechariah gives us a few. Write this one down. I would say the first thing that every leader needs, number one, is ministry, starting here, ministry from God's people. This is so important for any leader. Ministry from God's people. We see that in the existence of this book. We see that Zerubbabel and Joshua, those that were... Co-leading the Reconstruction Project. Those leaders, guess what they needed? They needed leaders. Leaders need leaders. Moms need other moms. Pastors need pastors. Like I told you last week, I, 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 I bailed out to Tennessee for a week to, to go there to just have an open heart and be poured into by, by some men of God that have gone before me. You need that as well. Scripture says that if the he who waters must himself be watered. If you're going to refresh others, you've got to refresh yourself. Can I tell you why? Because otherwise you will burn out. And you live in the lie that you have in and of yourself what it takes to lead the person. No, 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 okay? And, and like I promised the Lord too, like going into this, I've seen too many ministry crashes. I've seen too many pastoral burnouts. And I remember being like, Lord, I like, I don't want that. I don't, want, I don't want to, if we're going to do this thing, if we're going to start a church, I want to have a church where I, as the pastor, am in desperate need of the same ministry I'm offering to you. Can I remind you, I'm the pastor of the church. I'm not the head of Soulless Church. I'm just another body part. Jesus is the head. That's where we get dangerous, when we start to disconnect from the ministry of God's people. And this is why church exists, man. We, we exist for this reason. Uh, To be the body, to minister one to another. And and my heart is always going to be before God. God, don't ever give me a posture that preaches a message that I don't think I myself need. Like, you know, you have permission to minister to me. I just want to tell you. Is that okay? Like, give you that permission? Like, I'm not going to be like, whoa, what, are you trying to take my position right now? Are you trying to pray for me? You got to love me like that, all right? Like, we don't want that. And listen, you you can have that in your own life as well. If you're constantly, constantly a person where um, it's like everyone else is making withdrawals, you're like, hello, parent, all right? You got to ask, where are people making some deposits? And again, this is why community exists. I love Proverbs. It tells us that if you walk with the wise, you become wise, And this has just been so huge for me. Um, I've read so many books. I've read, I've attended so many different conferences. But like the the one sustaining constant in my life that has kept our church afloat three years now is just friendships and brothers and mentors and other people to pour into me. Uh, Be plugged into the church. And like church isn't a service you attend. Like we know this by now, right? Like it's a family you belong to through the gospel. And if if you're not in community, if people don't have windows into your life, and you're not opening up your heart for them to speak into your life, you're not experiencing church, you're playing church. And this is so important, especially now more than ever. Because this year sucked. Sorry, you can minister to me later and tell me not to say that again, okay? It did. Like it was hard. And a lot of you are hurting. And you're not meant to feel that by yourself. Um, there's a a recent study that is really interesting that kind of uh, speaks to this point. Um, Hold on. This happened last week. You guys remember this last week? Let's see if I fixed it. No. Oh, goodness. This is the time where I say, oh, it must not have been important, but I'm not going to say that. I feel like it was really important. (laughs) Hold on. Here it is. Almost there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yay, glory. Okay, found it. Can you get up for the tech team? They're, they're awesome. They just helped me big time. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Fixed it. Okay. Um, I really wanted to show you this chart. So this was a recent Gallup poll. Have you guys seen this? 2019 to 2020, it was a, a survey done across the country in regards to mental health. And and basically what you have is a comparison from 2019 to 2020. And all across the board, what you have is these massive negative numbers of people that can confidently affirm that their mental health is excellent. That's it. Does your mental health feel excellent? And uh, anybody who has lived through this iconic year will usually, most of the time, what you see is a lot of negative digits. You see all those negative numbers? Now, uh, that's the change in percentage points. Most people feel less excellent most people less excellent about their emotional, spiritual, and mental well-being. You'll notice one positive increase. Do you see it? It's, it's really big and easy to read, isn't it? Okay. There, there's, let me see, oh, look at my shadow. Check us out. I'm going to do this with my shadow. Right there. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you see that plus four? People who attend religious services weekly. This is a secular study, a Gallup poll, that there's a, there's a, there's a, a four-point increase, percentage increase in people who are in community. And we know what this, this year has done. It's driven everybody into isolation to protect ourselves, and in protecting ourselves, we're damaging ourselves. So, like, look, I'm not saying, look, okay, that's not, that's not a political statement, okay? This is a mental health statement. This is a spiritual well-being statement. This is a statement that says, listen, who is pouring into you? Who is And that's not like to dig people watching online. I love you. This is not against you, okay? You're great, all right? But, and it doesn't mean like be physically. Listen, it just means create space in your life for God to deposit into you what you need to keep going. Maybe it's a phone call to a friend. Maybe it's, it's confessing some sin that you've been holding back by reaching out. Maybe it's reaching out for the help that you know you need to. Anyway, uh, that point is really important. Okay. Um, another thing that we need is vision from God's word. This is so huge for leadership. If we're going to lead well, some of the things we need, we need ministry from other people. We can't do it alone. Um, the best of man is man at best and needs the community of faith. Uh, we also need vision. This is, I mean, can, can I say this is everything in leadership? vision from God's word. And in the book of Zechariah, that's the first six chapters are eight visions where God encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua in their ministry through these prophetic visions that the Lord gives him in his sleep. Um, That is, by the way, one way that God will speak to us. I'm not sure if you had that experience. I've experienced that a variety of times where the Lord has brought clarity to something that was maybe in my subconscious and brought it into like I'm in like the inception world you know, of the dream. And I'm like, and, God, and it's like, wow. And then God in the morning matches it to his word. And I'm like, you were ministering to me last night in my sleep. Because even though I was sleeping, you weren't, right? And so we see that with, with Zechariah, He has these visions. He has these dreams. And these visions are for the leadership of Israel. They're, they're to encourage what God has called them to do. And that's what vision's for. Um, a simple definition of, of vision. What do I mean by this? When I talk about vision and your leadership, This is a little Dr. Seuss sentence that I'm going to try to unpack for us, okay? Vision is the where you are headed. It's where you're headed that informs the why behind what you're doing. Vision is the where you're headed that informs the why behind what we're doing. If we've ever lost passion for where God's put us, it's usually because we've lost sight of our vision, right? We've lost sight of where we're going. We, like I've had to do this from the beginning with, with starting a church. It's like, God, keep my eyes fixed on where we're going, on what we're after, on what we're pursuing. Because it's the where we're going that will inform why I'm doing what I'm doing. And vision, it, it makes all the difference. It's, it's amazing both ways what vision can do. Uh, the scripture says, you know this verse, that where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. In the NIV, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish like, when there's a lack of vision. Like, I remember perishing as a young kid on those road trips, not knowing where we were going. And when we were going to get there. Do you know, you know that feeling? And you're just in the back. And remember the little string game that you would play? Does anybody remember that? And you do, like, little tricks. And, am I dating myself a little bit? Like, um, or yo-yos. Yo-yo. Remember yo-yos? And you're like, what? Okay. Um, you know, you're in the back just, like, trying to entertain. But, like, man, that those the longest car rides are when you have no idea where you're going and when you're going to get there. And, and listen, life can feel like that too when you don't have vision. Without vision, it's amazing, without vision you'll perish, with vision you'll flourish. It means everything. Um, think about your calling to lead in the workplace and a vision for that. Think about a vision for what you're doing as a parent. Think about it because you need to know it because you got to look at it. When you don't have vision, it's amazing when you don't have vision, when we don't have vision. It's amazing how just the, the, the smallest adversity can stop us in our tracks. Have you noticed that? Like when you don't have a vision for something, it's just like, ah, a little adversity. That must mean that God is telling me to stop. It's like, are you sure about that? But on the other side, it's amazing when you have vision, it's amazing what you can endure. It's amazing how you can persevere when you see where you're going. Because in the moment, you're like, I'm, I'm losing heart. But what does Paul say? Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season, there's time coming, you will reap a harvest if you don't lose heart. Vision keeps you going. Without it, will perish. With it, will flourish. And I just want to say that the important thing about this point is that it comes from God's word. Like That's where vision must come from. Vision, the ability to see where we're going, it informs the why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, it, it comes from God. Like, if right now you're like, yeah, I need vision, you need to go to God for that. That's that's him. He has that. Um, it, it doesn't come from just, like, asking a friend. That God can use those things. But, like, if right now you're in a place where you're like, I need vision for, for, for this relationship. I need vision for this season of my life. I need vision for what God's calling, where God's calling me to lead. You, maybe it's a good time to fast. Lord, speak to me. Show me. Open the eyes of my heart to see what you're doing. Vision, so important. I'll uh, I'll wrap this one up with a Leonard Ravenhill quote because he's awesome. He's got the best name ever. And he's one of the greatest revivalists in history. I love Leonard Ravenhill. He said, a vision without a task makes a visionary. That's a visionary. No task, just ideas. A visionary. A task without a vision is a drudgery. But I love this. A vision with a task makes a missionary. There's passion. There's purpose involved. Uh, Write this next one down. What else do we need to lead effectively? We need number one ministry from God's people. We need number two vision from God's word, but we also need strength from God's grace. Because leading will make you weak. Not in like a you're weak, bro, but like in a like, I'm tired. You know what I mean? Like in a I'm exhausted kind of a way. Um, and, and the reason, I want to remind you right now the reason why you're tired and exhausted um, in your leadership mission is not just because it's hard, but because you have an enemy. It's a spiritual battle. Warfare's exhausting, warfare is tiring. Being opposed is tiring. It can be. And we can get weak. We get a vision of this. One of Zechariah's visions is of a leader, Joshua the high priest, experiencing spiritual warfare. And and it's a really beautiful, by the way, description of the gospel. But you'll read this in Zechariah chapter 3 in this book. It says, Then he, God showed me, Zechariah, Zechariah has a vision, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Real quick, many scholars agree that when you see the reference to angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what you have is a pre Christmas appearing of Christ. It's called a Christophany. What a fun word. It it actually is really enjoyable to say, too. Christophany. I love that word. All right. And it literally means a, a pre incarnation, pre Christmas appearance of God in the flesh. in the form of Jesus. This is Jesus, the angel of the Lord. A a lot of times when people encounter the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, they declare that they had seen God. So there's a a lot more to that. But I believe here Joshua the high priest is standing before Yeshua. Joshua is standing before Joshua. uh, Joshua Joshua is standing before Jesus. That's what Jesus' name is. Uh, And it says this, Satan, the enemy, spiritual enemy, is standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, Without going too far into a full talk about spiritual warfare, I just want to, you know, there's like two of us in this room. Some of us are like, um, some of us, we give like, we're like two of, we're like the, see us what's called them the magicians. We're like, everything's spiritual warfare. Like, everything. It's like, that was the devil, you know. It's like, no, you need a nap, you know, like, you know? or a snicker bar, like enemies opposing me, it's like, well, maybe it's traffic, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, so there, that's like C.S. Lewis says that, that there's two extremes of the spiritual, you have like the magician that's like, like everything's magical, everything's spiritual, um, and then you have most of us, which are more the materialist, where we only attribute warfare to the situation when it's like visibly demonic or, or. um like large in nature, uh, but mostly it's like, unless there's like some scene from The Exorcist happening, we don't believe that there's spiritual warfare, and a lot of that's our secular influences. But, but when you look at scripture in Ephesians 6, where Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness, that there's a spiritual battle happening, the context there is children obeying their parents. Spiritual warfare. That's the context. The idea is that, that the wrestle you're facing, the exhaustion you're facing, um, it should encourage you. What you're doing is valuable, and because it's valuable, it's vulnerable. Keep going. H- how do you draw your strength when Satan is opposing you? And, and here's what Satan usually does in opposing you. He usually accuses you. This is, this is one of the main ways that Satan weakens us. He draws our attention off of Jesus, puts it on ourselves, and all we can focus, focus on is our own weaknesses. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So Satan's opposing Joshua, the leader. God is supporting and standing by him. This is beautiful. Look how God does this. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. This is a beautiful picture of the inadequacy of man to serve God because we're sinful. Even the highest of our priests. When he's standing before the Lord, and, and the idea they're standing before him is like ministering to him. The, the word they're filthy is the strongest Hebrew word for that word. It's vile. And, and that, that, is, um, that, that is the, the nature um, of our standing before God apart from Jesus. And it's worse than we think it is. It's vile. And. Um, we know this, and we come face-to-face with it. And sometimes, because we don't trust in Jesus enough, what we try to do is just justify it, act like our sin's not that big of a deal, just kind of like skirt past it or excuse it away. Uh, because, like, how many of you have, be- have become aware of your own sinfulness when you've led people before? Has that ever come to the surface? Just me, a couple of us, okay. Well, just start leading, you know? <laughs> I remember being at this Q&A on FAU campus, and there was this guy there, and uh, we were doing a q and a college ministry thing, and he was... He was uh, spouting off this, like, theology. He was, like, interrupting the Q&A to be, like, to, he had this doctrine about sinless perfection, that, like, if, when you become a Christian, you can't sin anymore. And my buddy who was ministering with me, my buddy Billy, he said, hey, are you married? You married? The guy said, no. But he's like, all right, <laughs> call me later, you know. <laughs> start leading, you know. Get in a relationship around people, and that stuff will start to surface. But, but that's what's coming face-to-face here here." Uh, In Joshua's life, the sinfulness. But notice this. He's clothed with those filthy garments. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, I love this. Take, this is what Jesus does for us. Take away the filthy garments from him. You can try to scrub off your own sin. Or you can just hear God say, "Let let me take that garment from you. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. This is so beautiful. Not only does God remove our sin, but he clothes us in his righteousness. He clothes us in rich robes. And I said to them, put a clean turban on his head. This is an instrument, um, a garment for the priest. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Um, This is called... Grace. This is called Jesus. This is called the gospel. Uh, this is, is what, what Paul says to us about this principle. This is um, just kind of like Christianity 101. Uh, the Bible teaches that every single one of us, we are like Joshua before God. We are filthy in sin. Um, we're, we're, we're born into it, okay? So, so we're just naturally um, in Adam, our first parent, so we sin. And, and it's just our proclivity. Um, the good news of the gospel is that God, knowing that we can never scrub ourselves clean on our own, even though we try to and fall into that trap all the time, like trying to like spray Febreze in a dumpster, do you know what I mean? It's been said, like, or, or perfume on a corpse. Um, God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is trade places with us. And, and the Bible says that God made him Jesus who knew no sin, who was clean, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There's this great picture. I want to just show you something about your future. If you're in Christ, if you've professed faith in Jesus, you've acknowledged your sin, you've looked to Jesus who took your sin to give you His righteousness. I want to show you your future. This is Revelation chapter 7. After these things I looked and behold, this is is the the day coming where God will make all things new and we will be worshiping Jesus with all tribes and nations. It says, behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. I love the standing before, just like Joshua, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. This is your future. It's also your present. It's your present. It's how Jesus sees you. It's his grace. Not because you've become worthy of it, but because Jesus really did pay it all. Because the cross was effective. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. You know what that leads us to do? I love this verse, Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord in that. Amen? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Amen? This leads us to praise God. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is why we sing worship songs. This is it, what God has done. And and, and the point here in Zechariah is that this is our strength. I love the way that this ends with Zechariah. He's clothed in righteousness, and and what's really interesting is there's this, this beautiful language. You have Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. You have Jesus standing before Joshua. You have Satan standing to oppose him. You have Jesus standing in the way, clothing him in righteousness. And the way this ends is so beautiful. It says, and the angel of the Lord stood by. That's awesome. And the language there was he stood by him. He came along his side. That was to be their strength. I just want to remind you, that good news of the gospel that we just went over, that, that is not just this kind of thing that gets you in the door. To say, okay, I, I get to be here now because that thing happened. We're talking about a present confidence. We're talking about a right now grace that strengthens you. That's what Paul told this young leader named Timothy. In Second 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul says, You therefore be strong in the grace that's in Jesus. Maybe right now you're exhausted from the opposition you're facing. And most of your exhaustion is, is because you keep coming face to face with your own inadequacy. You realize how flawed you are in and of yourself. Where does your strength come from? It comes from the fact that your righteousness is from Jesus, that he's covered you in his grace and he's with you. He's standing by you. Well, I don't deserve for him to stand by me. That's never been the good news. The good news is that he's with you because he's faithful and he's gracious and he's loving. I love the way that Paul says this. This is such a great picture of leadership. He says, at my first defense, this is at the end of Paul's life. Here's here's my testimony of ministry. At my first defense in leadership, no one stood with me. But all forsook me. It's like, so you had a bad day. Like, that's Paul's testimony. He's like, at the end of my life, I was alone. No one stood with me. I just had Satan opposing me. I had the opposition. And, and look at this grace. May I not be charged against him. I love this. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. I love that. It's something I... I Want to make more of an effort to pray. Every time I preach, every time God's called me to what He's called me to, may my confidence, may my strength be in the fact that God, you're with me. God, don't leave me alone up here. Come stand with me. God, come be with me. What a prayer. A couple more for you as we wrap this up. Um, we, we know Zechariah is famous for this important need for leaders it's the need of power from God's Spirit. Power from God's Spirit. This is probably the most, one of, there's a couple famous verses that come out of Zechariah, but one of the most famous is where the Spirit of God inspires Zechariah to speak to Zerubbabel uh, to say these profound words. You ever seen this? This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zechariah 4:6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. What great leadership advice. You can't do it on your own. You don't have in and of yourself enough might. You don't have enough power, but you have the Holy Spirit. Not only has Jesus clothed us in his righteousness, but he has gifted us the power of his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the comforter that Jesus promised. Um, Just, man, that's the point. (laughs) Be filled with the Spirit. God has gifted you his Spirit. Create space in your life where you're saying, Spirit, fill me. I want to rely on you. The Spirit is not some vague energy force that like keeps you going, like plugging your phone into the wall. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, God himself, a person who you can know intimately and invite to empower you to do what he's called you to do. Moms, you need the Holy Spirit. Business leaders, you need the Holy Spirit. Desperately. We all need the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us to do. We see this with Jesus and the disciples, right? They've spent three years with him. Three years. Like, if all the disciples needed to be effective in, remember we looked at that commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, right? Like Jesus already gave them the mission. And if all that they needed was to be smart enough to remember what Jesus taught them and basically just do their best to work hard and be like Jesus, if that's all they needed, You wouldn't have in Acts chapter 1. You would just have the the, the story continuing of them going on. But in Acts chapter 1, what you have is Jesus saying to them, hey, go and wait. In other words, all that you have isn't enough yet, um, but when you have the Spirit, you'll have more than enough. He says, go wait for the Holy Spirit. It's Acts 1-8, and he shall come upon you and empower you to be witnesses to me. So the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that echoed in Joshua. And um, lastly, we'll close with this last one. Guidance from God's Son. Guidance from God's son. What what do we need to lead well? We need ministry from God's people. We need vision from God's word. We need strength that comes from God's grace. We need power that comes from God's spirit. Uh, If we want to influence, we need an influence greater than our own. Uh, And we need guidance from God's son. The book of Zechariah is filled with Jesus. It's filled with Jesus. Every page has some picture of him or prophecy about him. Uh, Most of the most common verses that we know at at Christmas and Advent come from Zechariah. A lot of these promises about him. uh, And and the reason why that's important for a talk on leadership is because, at the end of the day, Jesus is the best leader. He really is. Jesus is not just the king of kings. He's the leader of leaders. And as those who are called to follow him, we've got to make sure that as, as we're following Jesus... His model of leadership is guiding our own. i have got to have guidance from God's son. Especially today, like, where every other Instagram ad is some other leader, consultant, life coach, that's trying to help you kill it, all right, at life. And it's usually some five-step plan to step over everyone and get your success, you know. And it's just so fake and plastic, and it's all about, like, you succeeding, and it's like, like, Um, it's self-worship that we put makeup on and call it influencing you know like i gotta have now if your heart is pure in that that's great but just so much today is about you and your platform and you going and influencing and leading and all this stuff and there's like there's i listen to a lot of these secular leaders and i'm like that's a good business piece of advice but then i'll be like wait a minute that contradicts jesus right there okay and you got to be mindful of that as a follower of Jesus. Zechariah shows us this Jesus in chapter 9. Rejoice, O daughter, greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Here's the king. Here's the boss. He is just in having salvation lowly. This is Zechariah 9 and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This, isn't, this, isn't this indicative of the life and leadership of Jesus? Does the king come to be served? No, he comes to serve. And that's what he had to teach his disciples because they had their own way of thinking about how to lead, how to do it well, how to force people to, into what you want them to do and get them where you want them to go. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Well, we would say in our culture, we, we, when we go to the restaurant, when an important person walks in, our attention goes to them. It doesn't go to the busboy, does it? Same in that culture. Who's, who's greater? Is it not the one who sits at the table? Now, he's saying, isn't that what we think about? He says, yet I am among you as one who serves. I'm the busboy that no one's looking at because that's the way of the kingdom. Leadership in the kingdom is to serve. It's to be the lead servant, right? That's Jesus' way. Comes in humble and lowly. Have you guys seen this picture? I think this is as timeless as... as, as um." As anything else, man. Well, what a great picture of the difference between two styles of leadership that are so contrasted that I don't even think we we can call that leadership. But there's one mode of the boss that is everyone's carrying his weight, and he's just kind of pointing fingers without a willingness to lift a single finger. Um, there's no example. There's just demands. And then there's a great picture of Jesus, who says to his disciples, "Forgive." But he says that because I'm going to forgive you. He says, Give up your life. And he says that as he goes and gives up his own life, right? He says, Serve. And he washes their feet. Just a beautiful example of Jesus, our guide in leadership. Um, this is the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah's major message. Here's where we close, I invite the band to come out to wrap us up. The dependent nature of God's effective leaders. And so as you're just looking at your life this morning, man, as we're thinking about, talking about, as I'm teaching on these things, like, what are the pressure points? W- what are the places in your life right now that you're like, that needs to come to the Lord, that needs to come before him. I need to bring that part of me before him in desperation and say, God, make me more of the leader that you've called me to be. Whether it's vision, God, give me vision for what you've called me to. Whether it's I need to reach out to God's people and be in community. I need the power of your spirit. God, I need your grace to be my strength, not my own ability, failures, or successes. Jesus, I need you to be my guide, to be my example, to be the one who I'm seeking to be like as you're making me. As you're making me more like you, as you're conforming me to your image. Jesus, may you be the one that I seek to resemble in my leadership. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.